All right, hello and welcome to Irreligiosophy. Uh, Leighton, we've got a, a guest that you uh, secured. How did you do that? Well, mostly with duct tape, but uh, <laughs> somehow uh, I was able to get her in here. Uh, <laughs> Eva, are you all right? She's right now giggling like a little schoolgirl next to me. Yep. <laughs> well, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Well, this is uh, Eva, I'm going to screw up your last name, I always do, Wasiluska. Vasilevska. Wow, I was so close. You were not even <laughs> in the same state. We weren't even the same zip code. You know, no one's talking to you. Me and Eva are having a conversation. Leighton has a big problem. The listeners of this show uh, pronouncing just about any uh, word, actually. Can yeah. he pronounce his name? I'm surprised English was his first language. Well, really, if you've ever talked to my mother, you know that that is an English she's speaking, so I would consider it a second language that I'm listening or speaking right now. So what's Eva's background? Well, actually, I'd like her to tell this. Um, how I ran across Eva is, uh, well, I work for her, sort of, and she has invited me up to uh, many of her uh, lectures that she does on Egypt and uh, anthropology and things like that. And uh, just through some discussions I've had with her, I thought she would be a great addition to the show. She has some very interesting stories, to say the least. So why don't we have you introduce yourself, Eva? Okay, at least I can say my name properly. It's uh, Eva Bashlevska. And she's already digging at me. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I am a professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Anthropology and uh, at the Middle East Center. So I am doing both archaeology and cultural anthropology for many years, and my area of specialization is the Middle East, with an extension to Central Asia as far as to Western China. So that's basically what I do, and have fun with it. So you, you specialize uh, a little bit past uh, Alexander the Great's empire, is that right? Oh, long time before Alexander the Great. Okay. I don't like Greek or Roman stuff. <laughs> Which Ladies, is funny. what have you done? <laughs> I, I brought on. She's anti-Greek and Roman, and I know I'm not anti-Greek and Roman. I just simply don't like it. It's too perfect. But I used to work in Palmyra, in Petra, and in Alexandria, the most beautiful places in the world with the most, ex you know, interesting excavations. I just simply prefer earlier cultures like the third millennium BC. I'm, I'm sorry, you can't be on our show anymore. You cannot put down Greece. <laughs> I'm not putting down Greece. I'm just saying this is not the country of my preference. And if I wanted to put down Greece, I would mention that my favorite country is Turkey. Oh. <laughs> well, Greece didn't Greece and for best colonies. Greek ruins, you go to Turkey, not to Greece. <laughs> See, Greece had some colonies in Turkey. Yes, they did, in fact, but they were, were a, a very seafaring people, so I'm not surprised they were all over. So you, you seafaring people, I just come on, it's, 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 it's frog it's jumps. frog jumps, but it's more than the Egyptians get that. Well, the know, Egyptians the had, were lazy. Well, Egyptians had one river, and, and that was good enough. Yeah. <laughs> right, the Egyptians had it perfect. You either raise the sail uh, to go one way, or you follow the current to go the other. They didn't really sail anyway. They didn't. Well, they didn't need to. They didn't need to. They had others who were doing it for them. I mean, they were smart. Why should they risk their lives and they were others doing it for them? <laughs> well, uh, except, I would of do course, the same thing. Well, except, of course, Hatchipset. Hatchip I'm going to screw up her name and I normally say it properly. <laughs> Put 
one from her. Well, she went all sorts of out there trading with all yeah, Lebanon but she went, and... She, you know, well, that was, you know, all the trade to the north to Syria, to Syria, Palestine was being done by the people of Syria, Syria, Palestinian coast. Yes, she went to Punt, but actually when you look at the map, it's Somalian coast. That's not too much of dangerous <laughs> sailing, you know. I can do that, oh, and so I'm afraid of water. So you would rather go with Moses, who went down to the cataracts and was out there stretching the lands, marking, saying, this is ours. Moses who? Wasn't it Tutmosis? <laughs> I said Tutmosis. Don't you throw me off. I said that properly. <laughs> well, just Moses. Okay. <laughs> but, but now you have to define which one you want to talk about. Well, see, I'm trying to remember which one did it. <laughs> it was a few of them. Tutmosis III went the farthest, didn't he? Well, Tutmosis III actually was having a lot of fun. He was the first Egyptian pharaoh who reached Euphrates. But uh, he also, of course, he was in Syria, Palestine. Almost each and every pharaoh was in Syria, Palestine. It just depended how far did we go and how long uh, they were able to stay. I mean, Tutmosis III had this fantastic uh, claim that uh, he conquered Syria, Palestine. My question is, Definitely he did, but it took him 16 times to return. So it's not exactly, you know, permanent conquest. Which pharaoh was it who built that uh, temple or, or um, big monument oh, to himself? The two temples, they were built by Ramses II. One was built for himself. Yeah. I mean, of course, for God Amon-Ra plus himself. And the other one that was for his wife, who, by the way, was a gorgeous woman. <laughs> you know, I've just realized we've gone completely off topic. When I, I hear, I wanted to ask Eva about her childhood because she grew up and has some very, very interesting religious stories from her childhood. I don't remember my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure you do, especially about, uh, oh, I don't know, being pulled in by a Catholic priest and talking about heaven. No, so uh, I, well, among classes that I teach at the University of Utah, I teach a class which is called Creation Stories of the Middle East, actually, you wrote a book about it, that uh, um, takes you back to the earliest written sources on religion, to the first religious stories, which, of course, we have to realize one thing, that there was not even a word for a religion, there was no concept such as religion. That appeared much, much later in, uh, in the history of humankind. But anyway, so when I teach these classes, I use um, some funny examples from my own life because, you know, it's very difficult to keep students' attention for like three hours of lecturing. So you sort of entertain them on occasions. And the story to which Leighton refer is a story that I usually use when we discuss the perception of heaven. Remember, we start with a very early period. We start with the cuneiform records from the third millennium BC and uh, with the hieroglyphic texts from the, the same millennium, the so-called pyramid texts. I was born in communistic Poland when religion was actually not forbidden, so as, uh, you know, being Polish means Catholic by default. And uh, so it doesn't matter what is happening in the country, there are always Catholics there, and there are always like 99.9% .9 of them. Of course, not everybody goes to church, but as a child, you usually go to 
I wouldn't even call it Sunday school because it was not every Sunday, but you will get a religious education. Obviously, my nature was very rebellious from the very beginning because I had a very practical and pragmatic approach to heaven. And, it, uh, well, it got worse with time. But, uh, sorry, again, coming back to Leighton's question. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> there sometime next I week, I was folks. probably like six years old, maybe something like, like that, and parents were supposed to come with you to this uh, meeting with nuns and uh, priests, and they wanted to show off how well they educate their children. Well, I try to be quiet, which is a big challenge for me. <laughs> but, you know, unfortunately, they ask me, uh, you know, they ask all the kids, yeah, where would you like to go after you die? First of all, from my point of view, asking a kid who is six years old or something like that, well, what are you going to do when you die? There is no concept of death really there. So where would you like to go? Of course, all the kids were well trained and all of them, they were saying, we want to go to heaven. Well, little Eva was unusually quiet, so finally the nun decided to ask me, Eva, don't you want to go to heaven? Well, they told me, well, I was always taught to tell the truth, and I said, no. Imagine embarrassment to my parents. <laughs> Unfortunately, they asked me for an explanation, and uh, my explanation was very simple. It's boring. Everybody is wearing white. They sing, and I cannot sing. They go in circles carrying the lilies. I'm sorry, I don't look good in white. Well, that was the story. And then, you know, with the older I got, I sort of improved on the story. Now I said, well, I prefer to go to purgatory, but, you know, hell would be in, um, under consideration if it would be communistic one because with communistic hell it would, it would be shortage of coal, shortage of any <laughs> fuel and a lot of interesting people around. <laughs> but there are no guarantees in life. Uh, yeah, the, um, the typical Christian version of heaven really is boring. I mean, all you're doing is sitting around chanting or singing hymns to God, right? That's heaven. You're in... Uh, uh, the presence of God for all eternity, singing hymns to him? Well, you know, everybody has his or her own vision of heaven. Remember, the Asman interpretation of what heaven is in Christian religions uh, or in Islamic religion or in Judaic tradition. I mean, everybody has his own or her own interpretation. There are some things upon which people agreed. That's when I talk about heaven. You know, it's Heaven is also sort of like a relatively new introduction to humanity. It's just you cannot control people, so you scare them. And so it's uh, when you look at the first religion for which we do have written sources, the Sumerian religion of uh, Mesopotamia, the idea was very simple. There was no heaven in the sense you die, you either go to heaven, to hell, or to purgatory. The idea was very simple. Gods, and these are my favorite gods and goddesses, created human beings because gods themselves were lazy. <laughs> After the universe was created, then they found out that in order to maintain it, they had to do things like cooking dinners, building houses. I mean, that was a hard job. 
they complain, and eventually Enki came up with an idea of creating humans. The result of they were created for one, pers uh, for one purpose only, to be servants to the gods and goddesses. So it was their function, their destiny, they, uh, that was their reason for creation. But since a dead servant is not a good servant, well, then after they died, they were useless, and they knew that. They had only one life to live. After they died, like everything else in Mesopotamia, everybody was going to the same place. This is Sumerian underworld, if you want to call it this way now, as Kur, K-U-R, where everybody had exactly the same faith, or, well, if you can call it that, because it doesn't matter whether you were a very moral person or not, whether you were a king or a peasant. It didn't matter. You were dead. You were exactly at the same level. So once you died, enter core, and Sumerians invented writing, and with writing they invented bu uh, bureaucracy. <laughs> once it was, your name was signed in, you were done. And the rest, that was not really afterlife. It was just sort of like a big um, storage room, repository. I mean, just something you have to send the dead things in. And uh, so... I kind of like the Egyptian version where they weigh a feather against your heart. <laughs> <laughs> if the feather outweighs it, then aren't you sent to a bunch of dogs and they eat you and, and then you're dead? Well, you know, it, it's sort of simple, simplified version of that. But no, it was completely different. You know, Egyptians lived in order to die, because the life after death was not only supposed to be longer, but much better, because they were in control, because they had all their lifetime on Earth to prepare for the life after death. And they so, had the little Shopti statues. Yeah, the Shoptis are awesome. Well, you know, I have one Shawapti, but they belong to the very, 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 very poor person. So I have a poor Shawapti people. I don't know if she's going to do a lot of work. I but don't worry, Eva. I'll make you some. Okay. That's a promise? Yeah, make oh, you yes. some too, Leighton. Not you. You, I've already got plans for your body. So, but the thing with the Egyptian was, the belief was in afterlife, but again, there was no concept of hell and heaven. The idea was either you made it to the afterlife or you don't. And even if you made it to the afterlife, you still could cease to exist if something happened to, uh, to you. So, for example, everybody knows about mummification in ancient Egypt. Egyptians mummified their bodies because they were necessary for five other elements, especially two of these elements, sort of spiritual elements for which translation is still disputed by uh, modern scholars, they were to come back to the body. And if they disappear, let's say, you know, if Ka decided to sneak out and spend some time in a tavern and <laughs> got a hangover and forgot about the body, that was it. You know, the person ceased to exist in spite of all these preparations. The nastiest thing what you could do to the ancient Egyptian who spent uh, his or her whole life accum accumulating a lot of resources to take with him or her 
to the afterlife to protect himself because don't be mistaken afterlife also was known for having hunger and thirst they were possibilities for that so you had to be well prepared but let's assume that your ex-wife really hates you so what happens next you die she pretends that you know she cries on your funeral but she has different plans for you like making sure that you will not have an afterlife if you are ancient Egyptian the only thing which she needed to do it would be to make sure that your name is being removed from your tomb and from your mummy and you are done you cease to exist archaeologists were able to discover a couple of mummies uh, whose names was, uh, were removed from them on purpose once the name was gone, one of the five spiritual elements and on this level, once the mummy was destroyed, you were done. So, you know, a nasty ex-wife could do a very simple thing, destroy your mummy or remove your name. <laughs> and you would wish that you never divorced her. Well, you wouldn't because you would be gone. Well, you're but dead, that's, but yeah. no, no more wishing after that. No more wishing after that. That's your goal in life is to outlive your spouse if you're in ancient Egypt. <laughs> Sounds well, like the same goal in this life. <laughs> I am not commenting on this one. <laughs> I know what is so, good for me. So your area of expertise is between about 2,000 and 3,000, is that right? Actually, you know, <laughs> well, I've been in the field for a long period of time, but I can, you know, just I have different areas of specialization. So, but in terms of religion, my specialization is ancient Middle East and sacral places. And that goes back even to the prehistoric period of time, because I've been working on identification of sacral structures in prehistoric Middle East, especially in Anatolia. But uh, when I talk about religion, I put in quotation marks, I talk about what we call religion today, the system of beliefs and so on. Usually my interest is in the third millennium BC and second millennium BC. The third millennium BC, because of the Sumerians, we have, mm, we have relatively big uh, number of cuneiform tablets discussing their beliefs, not that they, they never left what we, you know, a book comparable to the Bible, so their stories have to be pasted together and there is a lot of uh, guessing or interpretation being involved, but I adore my Sumerians because they have, they've been very, very practical. Approach was very simple, you have one life to live and enjoy it. And if, uh, that's the story where the Jews kind of ripped it off uh, the Enuma Elish, right, where it starts, um, went on high, is that right? Am I getting this right? Enuma, uh, well, you are in the area, but not exactly the time period. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the, by the time when Enuma Elish was written down, Enuma Elish is, uh, was written down by the Babylonians. That's Babylonians came to Mesopotamia and eventually replaced the Sumerian. Uh, domination, but it doesn't mean that they kill them off. No, it's just through the marriages and so on, the Sumerians stopped being dominating uh, um, uh, people in the area. Uh, 
the Babylonians came to full, you know, to beautifully civilized uh, country with all the set of beliefs being established with great tradition, with architectural forms and so on. And they did what smart people do, adopted what was good for them, which was basically everything. But at this moment, there was a little problem. They came, of course, with their own beliefs and they needed to incorporate them to order the existing pantheon of gods. And so Enuma Elish went on high was a really beautiful, I mean, it was not an attempt because it worked, but it was great PR on your new god. Basically, it was written in order to elevate the position of Marduk, the national god of Babylonians, over older Sumerian gods and goddesses. And so this story was, this story was very popular and continue to be uh, continue to be recited every year during the New Year ceremony, during the so-called Akitu festival. So of course the story was also known to the writers of the Old Testament. But it's again this uh, when a lot of borrowings that you know the Old Testament, and I'm talking here especially about Genesis is uh, these are borrowings of uh, much earlier stories. Many of these borrowings are from ancient Sumerians, so even before the Babylonians. But the stories were adjusted, changed, depending on the time. And uh, so uh, difficult sometimes to recognize for people who do not study all these religions. And Ma'elish was probably used as sort of a basis for the so-called priestly account, which starts the um, Old Testament, you know, the story of creation within six days, and on the seventh day, uh, God is taking a rest. Uh, so when you compare it, the order of creation of a priestly account, to the order of creation from Enuma Elish, you can see that the same order is being more or less preserved, you can see, for example, just from the first line of the um, priestly account, the first line of the Old Testament, actually, when the God's voice was uh, hovering over the death. The death in Hebrew is Teham, the, well, the fallen heroine of Enuma Elish was Tiamat. Both words are related and are derived from much uh, earlier Semitic word for death, watery death. So you can see a lot of, but it's, it's not only the priestly account, meaning Enuma Elish, but there are many Sumerian stories that were borrowed by authors uh, of Old Testament, for example, the uh, yeah, so-called Yahwistic account, which precedes the uh, priestly account, is dated between 1000 to 800 BC. The story of paradise, it is, well, the story of uh, known, uh, the story of paradise from Sumer, sort of few stories combined. So you can see a lot of parallels there, no. but they're not as enjoyable as the ones from ancient <laughs> Sumer or Babylonia. <laughs> That's, you know, replicative fading, right? When you keep Xeroxing something, it keeps getting... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, cuneiform tablets, I'm going to take one more stab at it. Epic of Gilgamesh? Yes. 
Epic of Gilgamesh is, has been recorded on cuneiform tablets. Once again, we are back to the Sumerians. The account that you are probably familiar with, so are many other people, is the account that was found at Nineveh in the famous library of Asurbanipal. However, that was, uh, you know, this is like a later edition. The first stories of Gilgamesh uh, are dated again to the third millennium BC, and there is a possibility that Gilgamesh was a historical person. But, uh, you, you know, proving we, we still need to have something with more or less his signature. So he probably borrowed his flood story, story from Noah, right? No, you're not. I didn't borrow the story from you. You know, you are just getting my whole course in like, what, one hour or yeah, something? Yeah, one hour. But you just go straight to the point. <laughs> no, once again, the flood story goes back to ancient Sumerians. <laughs> and the name of, the, I mean, Noah's name was actually not Noah. Original one was uh, Sumerians Yusudra. And Babylonians renamed him Atrahasis. And then the story of Gilgamesh refers to Utnapishtim. Right, right, right. This is the, that's the one that Leighton could never get right. You could never say Utnapishtim. I could too, I just didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I think Charlie was just after your going on that. We've actually uh, done a podcast discussing uh, the... Uh, Enema Elish. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't feel bad because remember, one thing which people make a big mistake with with ancient texts, when you see, for example, any movie when they discover the ancient scrolls and somebody with a very dramatic, loud voice is reading from them, we have no idea. We have no idea how they pronounce stuff. We have no clue. We can make very good guesses, but they are just guesses. The same way as I learn English, you know, I cannot pronounce a word unless I don't hear it. And unfortunately, what is the worst part about the English language is lack of consistency in pronunciation. <laughs> Somehow you like to say but, but then you say butcher. Would you please to keep it but and butcher or but and butcher, okay? How am I supposed to know? This is my argument from here on out for not Layton. being able to pronounce some of You're these. You're off the hook, Leighton. It's, yeah, it's a scholarly problem. Guys, exactly. one, more, one more servant for afterlife <laughs> for that one. Yes, yes. I will carve these and they will be beautiful. You need to make a, a, a pronunciation statue to pronunciate words for you in the afterlife, Leighton. Yeah, that, that one will sit right next to me and he can fumble around with it. <laughs> <laughs> I was... I was going to make a crack about Adam and Eve, but I guess we've already... We've kind oh, of no, you can. It would be fun. My, my uh, question is that um, I didn't know that the paradise was a Sumerian, uh, lifted from Sumerian uh, text. Yeah. See, this is something I'm just barely learning. I mean, uh, this is something we haven't even covered. I'm thinking we need to do a little bit more research into this. Oh, it's a great story. It's fabulous. So, first of all... You know, first of all, uh, it's uh, the, the word for Eden is actually what you find in cuneiform, in cuneiform writing, it's Sumeria. Second of all, Sumerians had their paradise, and their paradise was a very real thing. This very real thing is being excavated right now. Uh, this is called the Dilmun, D-I-L-M-U-N, sometimes being also spelled, uh, spelled with T. 
it is being identified by majority of scholars, not all of them, with modern Bahrain. And Sumerians referred to Dilmun as the paradise, but as well as a real place to which they were ascending their ships and so on. That was international center of trade. And uh, so that's a real place. The story of Adam and Eve, yes, there was no such story in ancient Mesopotamia because women actually by the Sumerians were treated equally or almost equally. They actually were paid as much in many cases, not all of them, as much as men were for the same job. But, uh, uh, but so the story was a little bit adjusted. However, there is, you know, the, um, this, uh, the many common things. For example, the tree. For example, my favorite part, and, uh, well, I love to tell the story. Uh, would you, you guys, you read the Bible. You uh, read the Old Testament, and I'm sure that you read the story of paradise. Would yeah. you please tell me what happened after Adam and Eve, who was not named at the time, uh, after they ate from the tree. What really happened? Uh, they put on, they got ashamed, and they put yeah, on they some fig leaves, some to, fig leaves to hide them themselves. Yeah. Okay, so what really happened? Well, I'm assuming they had sex. <laughs> no, you were close. You were very nice with, you know, they got ashamed. You see, when you look at the story, actually, what was supposed to happen? Okay, what was supposed to happen? What was supposed to happen? If they eat from the tree. They were supposed they to be struck knowledge. dead in that very day. Well, yeah, that's exactly. right. That's right. All exactly. Right. And the snake, the most subtle of all the animals, who somehow kept talking, <laughs> told them, no, you are not going to die. He was right. So he was actually right. He was very, very much right. Not only they didn't drop dead, but they look at each other and notice their nakedness. And so forget about the shame. They discover difference between them. There, there was no feeling of shame. Remember when you look at, when you go up, few lines um, above, it says that at the time, Adam and the unnamed woman, they were both naked, but they didn't know anything about it. And so they suddenly they ate from the tree. By the way, which tree it was? What tree kind of a tree? Knowledge, good or evil. Well, yeah, but, you know, can you put the fruit on it? Apple? Apple. No. <laughs> Don't know. Well, neither does the Old Testament. It's not mentioned. But everybody assumes that it's apple or at least a fig tree. It's not. But we don't know which tree it was. But you know, they ate oh, from the oh, tree. Oh, oh! So now you're just picking on us. I mean, I, I have fun. You're pretending with it. like you know. Okay, all right. I just, I have fun with it. And so they just look at each other, scream, and run to nearby. And I'm not going to, you know, advertise any store in which I'm shopping to get the claws. <laughs> That's the only thing which happened. They didn't drop that. Is, and is it possible that? Coming back to the Sumerian connection, I will let you talk. Don't worry. Coming back to the coming back to the Sumerian connection, you just we have a very badly destroyed cuneiform tablets, which I'm trying to locate what it is. So hopefully somebody remembers, because I don't, which refers to the tree which establishes the use of clothes. You see the connections? Sumerians believe that whatever was created, 
and humans were one of those necessary creations, had its purpose, had its destiny, had its function. So we are pretty positive that they had a story about how the clothes were created. Unfortunately, the story did not survive. It's the only sentence which did. And, you know, it was incorporated to the story. And the actually original story of the Sumerians on which the Paradise story is based, it's much more fun because it has, you know, definitely has much more sex and a couple of uh, other things involved. You know, Sumerian gods were fun. They I'm used to, to like Sumeria. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. Okay, Charlie, I think you have permission to speak. I was going to say, so the moral of the story really is that you can't trust the Jews because they steal stuff right and left. <laughs> no, that's not the moral of the story. You Personally, I was thinking the moral was God's a liar because they didn't die, so trust a snake. <laughs> well, the story is you cannot trust any story <laughs> that claims to be the only truth. How, what is it possible that Adam looked down at himself and got ashamed? Well, actually, he wasn't circumcised. I can was, understand why he'd be ashamed. And what's wrong not to be? What's wrong with uh, lack of circumcision? Who told you that you were supposed to be? Well, the Judea or the <laughs> the Yeah, that's a My good answer. My tongue got tied. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That was a sign of the covenant, of course. Yeah, no. Well, you see, again, we can go to the sto uh, to to circumcision. The circumcision is actually, as far as we can say, much, much older custom than the one that is presented in the Old Testament. Circumcision was in ancient Egypt, and actually ancient Egyptians look at other people as, you know, being circumcised, divided them into being circumcised, non-circumcised, big noses or little noses, <laughs> this type of things, and I really refer to noses. But uh, it's, uh, the thing is that circumcision became a part of many different religions. And uh, each and every, from all the religions that I study, I mean, my attitude is very simple. They have to be treated equally. And uh, um, I'm very tolerant of them. I just have my, you know, I love my Sumerian religion more than others because the Sumerian religion doesn't promise me things. With monotheistic religion, where, religions, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, there are promises being made, and they are punishments. And so people do have expectations, and there's a lot of things which are not being explained. For example, you know, bad things happen to very good people. And we always question it, because I can give, you know, I mean, I cannot... You know, think about it. You cannot stand your neighbor who is making much more money for doing absolutely nothing. Is a total crook and has a dog who is barking all the time, and has all the luck in the world, and you don't. So you go to your religious functionary from monotheistic religion and say, "Why?" And usually the question, the answer will be very simple: God is trying you, has different plans for you, and so on. And eventually, when a religious function has run out of answers. The final answer is always, all the stuff will be rewarded when you drop dead. Well, that's, from my point of view, it's too long for me to wait. I've always hated that answer but, myself. Uh, but that's a very common answer. With the Sumerians, there was no expectations. It was known that Sumerian gods and goddesses are not perfect, so what do we expect them to create perfect creation? 
So perfection was not expected. And it was not like, you know, when we prayed, many people pray to today, and, you know, even people who are non-believers, they pray, please, you know, how many of my students on the way to exam pray to God, saying, oh, God, please, if I pass this exam, I promise I will not drink for another two weeks. I mean, we are trying to make deals with uh, supernatural beings. In the case of the Sumerians, it was they didn't have any expectations that gods or goddesses uh, will really listen to you. Bad things happened to them because gods had other things to do. They had a party. They drank too much. They had hangover. They were too busy. And these are the real stories. I'm not making them this up. But they had other things to do. So, you know, that, that was good and bad. That it was bad because if bad things happened to you and your gods were not looking after you, that's bad. But it was good too because if you screwed up and did something really bad, chances are that they were too drunk to notice. <laughs> I like that. Let's so, you know, yeah. I just, of course, I make it much simpler than it is. But the idea, I hope you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is only a problem when you believe in a uh, one perfect. God, who really created everything. So then the creation and all the problems kind of are on his shoulders. But see, we at Irreligiosophy um, kind of have the same philosophy that you do as far as religion, except we treat them all with equal ridicule. Isn't that right, Layton? That's pretty close. I, I think we've made fun of just about every religion we can find. But you pretty much with, with me, you were coming back to Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> and it's for a lot of stories. I mean, Remember Judaism, Christianity, and um, you know many ideas of the Old Testament are included in the Quran and especially in the Hadiths. But uh, it's uh, you know a lot of customs that are being uh, performed today by different monotheistic religions are not there. Are simply not there in original sources. They're not there. It's just like you know to give an example from a different culture from Islam, you know, it's, uh, as you know, in Saudi Arabia, women are not allowed to drive cars, right? That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> yeah. Uh, please Should continue. I ask for some statistics? <laughs> I, I think she's going to beat me. <laughs> oh, you are in trouble. And here, that's, here. that's not for religious reasons. That's just purely for safety reasons, yeah. right? Yes, yes. Well, I'm not settling just for show up anymore. <laughs> I need to in this life, okay? <laughs> but women in Saudi Arabia are not allowed to drive cars, which is supposedly based on the Quran. I have a tiny little problem with that. Can somebody show me where in the Quran there is a mention of the car? Well, I'm sure it was prophesied somewhere. No, it was. You see, this is the thing. The Quran, this is infallible word of Allah, who, by the way, is Allah, not the God. And many of your listeners may find it very interesting, but Allah is not a God, like translation to English. Allah is the entity, is the whole, which, uh, which includes both masculine and feminine, something that is misrepresented very often in modern media. So in many ways, Allah is much more uh, women-friendly than the uh, uh, God of Christianity or of Judaism. And I know that many people find it absolutely shocking. But the thing is, because these religions were created thousands of years ago, 
Now interpretation makes them whatever you want to remember. In the 80s in Germany, the Bible was translated to German as a porno book. <laughs> and so it's, it's, you know, but just people want, people see what they want to see. And uh, I don't have a problem people believing in one God, whatever God is. I have a problem when people are trying to tell others that only I do know the truth. You don't. And so this is where I have a problem because there is more than one truth possibly and we should be pretty tolerant. Look at, you know, to make my point with, uh, with uh, different religions, well, ask whomever, you know, whoever is religious uh, in whatever religion and you will be very surprised. I probably won't be surprised but well, we don't have myths. Myths are of other religions. I mean, ask any Christian and, or tell me something about Christian myths. What myths? The story of Moses? <laughs> the story of Moses is a myth. That's doesn't true. have any scientific uh, uh, value. And the, sto the story of Adam and Eve is a myth, but if such a story was, uh, had been found in New Guinea, it would be a myth. But it's because it's in our modern society, many people will defend it as the only truth. And so it's just basically, religion is something to believe in and not to prove it. Once you try to prove religion, then you're in trouble. Well, it's actually funny that you say that uh, some people out there believe that there's only one true religion and they are the ones that know. And it makes me think of my mother. Now, you actually met my mother this week. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure you've got some uh, very interesting opinions on her. But uh, one, t one night... As she she's was great. Oh, she's great, but she's a little bit loopy. She's a little crazy. Don't yeah, you give me that look. She's crazy. She's Mormon. She's crazy. Well, no. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. Yes, I met uh, Leighton's mom. She's been helping me on the project from hell. That's my <laughs> hell, remodeling. But uh, you see, that is kind of interesting that he mentioned that because I had no problem whatsoever with that. I was drinking my wine. Oh, no, no, no. It actually happened afterwards. What do you mean? As we were leaving, I was telling her good night, and uh, she made the comment, see, I was having a bit of a troubled time, and she made the comment that I need to pray to figure out what I need to do, and I kind of chuckled, and she actually looks at me and she says, we both know that you know that Mormonism is true, it's just that you can't give up your sinning ways. I must ways. have missed this one. No, you weren't even around for this one. But so why are you asking me about this story? I'm not, I'm not asking you, I'm <laughs> pointing out that it's very entertaining to me that people come out and they say there is only one true religion, and then they keep pushing it and pushing it. Well, that's, you see, there is, there is not, you know, just in defense of religion, uh, all religions, they are not there to make people's life miserable. They are there originally. Yeah, just guilted in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, just there are some religions which are being known for in position of guilt. But, but you, you, you see, a religion provides this set of values. And having values, which actually is the meaningless word when you check it, is very important. They provide, I would rather say, order. And people either people need order. We cannot live in total chaos. We all hate traffic signs, 
but uh, and we hate to stop on the stop sign when nobody else is there but we need that and so in defense of religion uh, religions as an ideological system provide the set of rules and regulations and uh, uh, the pro uh, and you know most of the time these rules are good you know most of the time the rules are the same do not kill unnecessarily and uh, you know many other they are very very important rules that you can see in each and every religion the problem is that we create and actually I believe and in this case you can call me dazed I believe uh, Mm, you know, I am not organized religions are the ones which are responsible for providing interpretations which lead some people to think that they are superior to others because they believe in the certain set of religion. I mean, telling his mom is, she had no problem whatsoever with me, uh, although I just, you know, by the end of the day, after after the mess in my house <laughs> and everything flying and covered with, so I needed my glass of wine. She had no problem with that. No, no. I have no, you see, Leighton is her son. Of course she sees her for him as the final destination. Of course. Because kids rarely live up to expectations of our parents. Although Leighton is, is, is uh, you know, his mom not only loves him, but she knows that he's one of the greatest guys. And I do agree with that. But, you know, she still is a little bit worried about his soul. Now, Charlie, I'd like you to go back and pump up the volume on what she just said. One of the greatest guys, okay. How tall are you, man? I would like to formally disagree and lodge a complaint uh, about that comment. And I'd like to see what kind of sample size you have. <laughs> you know, no guys. one's talking to you. Just be quiet and do as I say. <laughs> I think that we may be having a selection bias here. Well, you know, I'm the only man she knows, so yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Your mom or me? <laughs> you, obviously. You're the one that builds hey, me up. You ought to hear I'm what comes sorry. Out of my mouth. I'm living with the best guy in the world. Oh, so. she's changing her story. So, but he, you know, he is really one of the greatest guys I met, and I mean it. Aha, uh -huh. see, now turn that up. I expect that and to be I'm, turned way up. <laughs> that, that I will edit out of the podcast. But, but you, you see, you know, with this thing, you know, just I will pray for you and so on. People, it, it's not that she means anything bad. You know, she really believes in what she was taught, what she is being told, and there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, if she just suddenly kidnapped Leighton and, and drag him to the church and, uh, you know... Or to the to, Mormon boys' ranch. Or something like that. <laughs> you know, that's a different story. I mean, I never, you know, it's, I've been living in Utah since 1983. And uh, people, and I travel a lot. And I travel to the Middle East and so on. And I'm Polish. By definition, Poles are all Catholics, okay? So a Polish woman living in Utah and actually liking it, it's, it's, it's a shock of the century. And, and you know, and then people ask, people ask me, well, are you a Mormon? Well, <laughs> it shows you how much do they know about it because they ask me this question when I'm having a glass of wine or having a cigarette. And so that's just definitely, you know. But... 
people cannot understand why I never left Utah, why I really love Utah, because the idea is all, you know, all the Mormon missionaries are on your doorstep. I've been here since 1983. Until last year or year ago, I had a perfect record. Not even one person in Utah tried to convert me. Maybe just looking at me meant I'm absolutely beyond conversion, <laughs> but nobody tried to convert me. And then I got the, a woman calling me over the phone, and I just told her, you know, you just spoiled my record. And she was very apologetic about it. <laughs> but, but you see, the thing is, I've been accepted here in Utah with no problems whatsoever. And maybe I've been, you know, uh, maybe after this broadcasting, I will have a line of people trying to, to convert me. <laughs> well, actually, I wouldn't go that far because we just got a, a comment on our podcast saying that even we make Mormonism entertaining. So that is very difficult to do. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, you have a Ph.D., so uh, I think they they might not even want you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, didn't they just uh, discard a bunch of uh, the in intellectuals yeah, from the late nineties? You were here for that, right? Because um, I remember I was either in college or medical school when this uh, September six intellectual purge happened. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you remember that from the late nineties? They kicked out six intellectuals, a couple feminists, a couple historians. Well, this story goes back not on the 290s. Yeah, I remember Utah since the flood in 1983. I landed in the middle of that. <laughs> but, That's uh, when State Street was flooded, right? Yes, yeah. but, uh, you know, when you go to the beginning of the University of Utah, already in 1915, uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to remember the dates Right, but yes, it was, I believe it was 1915, quite a few very famous professors of University of Utah walk out of University of Utah because of University of Utah. We are not talking about BYU, we are not talking about, because of the perception that the Mormon church was too much involved. It's an actually fascinating story. Some of his professors, they were, uh, you know, they created different sciences here at the University of Utah and moved to other universities, which they uh, were they, uh, I mean, they were already famous at the time, but we lost, we lost enormous intellectual power. The protest was, again, about too much involvement from the church. And since that time, you know, the church is, try, is trying to balance the line. And you see, I'm not trying to be diplomatic. I'm not trying to be diplomatic. I'm just trying to show that, you know, it just everything depends on the people, how people are. It doesn't have much to do with, the, uh, with the church, whether it's Mormon church or Christian church or, or whatever. It has everything to do with individuals. So, can we all agree that the Mormon church hates smart people? <laughs> I do not agree with that. Some of my students were good Mormons and are good Mormons. And then some. There was some, some were not good Mormons and some were definitely not good students. Matt, it's not about you. Here's a question for you. We want to get you on record. Uh, who's crazier, uh -oh. Catholics or Mormons? Okay. My you know, that's a tough it, question, isn't it? It's a very tough question, and I tell you why. 
<laughs> I'm Polish. I, you know, I was, I had to leave the country at the time when Solidarity was born. I lived during the martial law, okay? And uh, now I don't even want to go to Poland. And it's, uh, first of all, you know, I saw it, all my parents are dead, so basically that just takes away. But, you know, one of the reasons why I, you know, my last few trips to Poland were not very enjoyable is because I believe that Catholic Church became way too big in Poland, got to the point that when you read outside newspapers, Poland is being referred, my own country, to as Iran of Europe. So, in order to deal with the problem, I decided not to deal with the problem, meaning I stopped reading the stuff. But from what, I, from what I've seen when I was in Poland last time, I was there when my father died in 2003, so it's been a long time ago, but the absolute power that Catholic Church was able to exercise in such a long period of time, since Solidarity in 1981, it's threatening. Again, it is because the Catholics are crazy, no. Because, you know, Catholics are like anybody else, you know, some of them are crazy, some of them not, you know, think about it, we are all crazy. We believe that, you know, on the day of the wedding, both the bride and the groom are virgins, huh? <laughs> so, you know, yeah, we dress them up in white and all this kind of stuff that I'm veiling. But, but you know, it's again, it goes, it, it goes not to the religion, it goes to the people and their interpretation of religion. Now, what, what are your thoughts about, first, Catholicism seems to be swinging more conservative uh, since the death of the last pope and, and the ascension of Pope Benedict. And two, we did a, an Atheist News Network about the Catholic Church in Brazil and a little nine-year-old girl who was raped by her stepfather, was pregnant with twins. They went through the court system. It was uh, agreed that it was a good idea to, to abort the baby uh, because the, the, the nine-year-old uterus wouldn't be able to, to house these twins and carry them to term. So for their own safety, the, the mother, they'd abort it. And then the Catholic Church stepped in and, and, and excommunicated everyone who was involved. Yeah, now actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to say something, but obviously you're just too mouthy to allow anybody else to speak. But uh, anyway, <laughs> speak up, are you talking ladies? to me right now? No, no, no. You're talking just fine. It's, yeah, it's, it's good that you're washing him out for once. Leighton, would you be nice to our guests, for God's sakes? Well, why would I do that? <laughs> so, what were you going to say, Leighton? Yeah. Well, no, no, pretty much you've already asked the question, so I'm just going to sit here quietly and let Eva answer Shut up. Shut your question. Well, a Catholic church is not the only church with... I mean, there is nothing I can say in defense of any actions like that coming from any community, period. Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned that the Catholic church got much more conservative, and uh, if that's a proper word, after the death of Polish Pope. And, you know, here is, I was there when I, you know, I remember what happened when Polish Pope was elected and uh, it was very interesting how many people came back to Catholic Church because of the way how he conducted himself in the business of Catholic Church, which doesn't mean that it didn't become, uh, that, you know, he was in any sense of the word liberal Pope. Is there such a thing like a liberal pope? I think that's an oxymoron. An oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. II may have been the closest to it I, that I can remember anyway. I mean, uh, he softened the stance on uh, evolution. 
uh, he made strides to kind of be conciliatory and, and, and more open, I think, than Benedict. I think Benedict's a, a step back. Well, you see, this is not my specialization, so I am not evaluating <laughs> it. I'm staying out of it. I think the, the biggest point she wanted to get I'm across is that it was a Polish pope that was doing all the good. <laughs> no, I, I think that he was the most entertaining one. He was so likable. He was definitely... Yeah, he, you know, he was always very likable, and plus, you know, it was very... Remember, it was Polish. He, uh, I'm Polish. He was elected when we were fighting for the, for the freedom of all the masses, you know. We were fighting, we were destroying Soviet Union. It was so much fun to see that. No, excuse me. It was just forget it, you know. It was just like it was the biggest slap in the face of Soviet Union. No, no, I'm not laughing at you, Eva. Just a, a, I remembered something that happened while I was in the military during the time that the last pope was dying. And... Uh, <laughs> Basically, my uh, my commanding officer had a bet running as to which was going to die first, the Pope or the guy who had his wife hooked up to a machine and the family was fighting over. What was her name? Oh, God. Uh, uh, Terry Lynn. Scavo? Shivo, yeah. Scavo, yeah. yeah. Shiva, huh? And uh, I remember that <laughs> that she died, and my commanding officer was sitting there saying, that woman lasted for this long and she couldn't last a few more days to beat the Pope. <laughs> oh, that's awful. That's why I was laughing. Not at what you were saying, but just that story popped up in my head and I couldn't control it. That's, oh, that's fantastic. You know, the story which uh, popped to my head is actually, you know, I, uh, I, I teach very unusual class, which is nothing, I mean, it has a lot to do with religion, but it's not the main topic. It's called Anthropology of Humor and Laughter, which uh, which covers, you know, explains the laughter. It's neurological, psychological, anthropological, just name it. It's a great class on diversity. But one of the things, coming back to Polish pop, there's always <laughs> a point there. You know, I keep laughing at my students that I can uh, to my students that I can keep teach this class because, of course, I'm Polish, I'm a woman, I'm blonde, and so on. So you know, there are plenty of jokes about me. And one of the Polish jokes, which is a part of the literature on anthropology of humor and laughter, actually is a joke about the Polish Pope. That when Polish Pope was elected, actually people in the United States thought it was yet another joke. <laughs> <laughs> Official news were considered to be another Polish joke. <laughs> I always found it, you know, hilarious. Yeah, that's true, because I know quite a few Polish jokes. <laughs> I think my favorite has always been uh, the Polish inventor who invented the solar-powered flashlight. Do I want to know? Well, solar-powered. It can only work in the daytime because it needs solar. <laughs> you see, you've got a Polish dummy right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because you're blonde, but we won't get into that. <laughs> no, because I've been doing remodeling for seven days. I? I'm, you know... You turn, uh, when you die, you turn into dust. I'm already there. <laughs> so, I'm all dust. So I guess we can, we can kind of wind it up. But I, I'm curious, we didn't ask you exactly what your religious views are now. What, what do you consider yourself? Uh, well, my name is Eva Vasilevska, and I stick to it. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you know, just 
Mm, okay. So it depends, you know, how long is the form. So if the form has like like just <laughs> two centimeters, I really have to answer that. Well, being a Polish American, I have to put Catholic. If I want to confuse people, then I put uh, 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 Sumerian paganism, which doesn't make any sense, but that's a different story. <laughs> and, you know, when I want to have a scientific discussion, and when someone is telling me that I'm stupid because I don't believe in God, gods, and so on, I just prefer to be Voltarian deist. So, well, yeah, I can be a woman and change my opinion. So, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, I adjust my religions as I travel because, you know, religion, among different things with uh, rules and regulations in religion, a good thought is to develop new prohibition. Like, suddenly, I cannot eat this because it's against my religion. Gotcha. So you're a pragmatist, really, when you boil down to it. Yeah, I just I created, I'm known for creating some obscure religious movements that do not allow you for drinking Arabic Arak, but uh, you are fine with wine. <laughs> <laughs> There's some obscure Catholic order in Poland. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on. This has been very enjoyable. We'll have to have you yeah. back when Matt Wakefield, one of your former students, can be on with us. Okay. Uh, Matt has actually, if you go to our site, Matt has been begging to get on here with you since as soon as he found out you were coming on, he kept asking, can I get in on that action? I cannot go to your website because my computer is covered with dust. Well. <laughs> all three of them, actually. That's all I've got to say is your mom's fault. you're a woman, get out the duster and, you know, do your duty. And you want to leave to see tomorrow. <laughs> I would like to revert back to the comment that she said I was a good man, that, and we'll end it at that. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next <laughs> yeah, and I would like to, po to point out what I said, that you are a good man. And that doesn't mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's relatively speaking. Exactly. It's relative to the moment, I think. <laughs> and it's relative to the other gender being involved. Ah. <laughs> yes, let's end on that point. All right, fantastic. Okay. Thank you guys for having me. Well, thanks for coming on.